Hey, hey, this is Aaron. Way back in, uh, what was that, October? Yeah, we it's not New- really way back. It's just a few months ago. It feels like forever ago. Yeah. We went to New York Comic Con, and I interviewed Milton Grip. Grip? Grip. So he's a pop culture dude that I've been meeting to interview for a long time, because he runs the ICV2 White Paper Conference, where I learned more in my entire uh, short-lived career of pop culture journalism than anywhere else. Because I got real statistics about the actual comic industry that were not really available to me as someone just writing about it who has no access to sales and stuff. But, you know, as you might have guessed from our weeks and months of radio silence, the future of the Ninja Consultant podcast may be in doubt because uh, I got into a grad program at NYU that's the... It's the ITP program, which stands for Interactive Telecommunications, but I like to say Interactive Technology, because when it started in the 70s, they didn't have, you know, so much technology and a lot more telecommunications. Um, Well, telecommunications was cutting edge at that time. Yeah, and now it just sounds like old school. Well, now it is old school. Anyway, uh, so going to classes and stuff, it was taking up a lot of my time, and I quit writing for Shelf Life because of the sort of time drain. So we really haven't been watching so much anime, although I did promise a friend of mine that we would review, we would interview him on our podcast and tell him he should watch Fujiko Mine show. And then we could talk about Fujiko and his book. And he is not, I don't think he's watched it yet. But he didn't no, write a book. Certainly not. We have like two friends who've written books. Um, or more than that. Even more than that. Yvonne has several books. Anyway. So, you know, the future's in doubt, but uh, once in a while, maybe we'll still put out a show. I want to revamp the website, but I haven't hired anyone to like... A fan of ours designed the current design, and I want to port it from LiveJournal to something more reasonable. Uh, so if you're listening and you're interested in helping migrate the site off of LiveJournal to something more stable and less spamrific, let me know. And I don't mean for free. I'm not asking for slave labor. But I am looking to also like work with a web designer because I need to redesign my personal site. I want to start a webcomic. There are several sites I want to work on, and I, I want to hire someone to work with. Anyway... So who is Milton Grip? According to the bio on ICB2.com, Milton Grip has been in the pop culture business for over 30 years. School at the University of Wisconsin and working through college and comics retail distribution, he formed Capital City Distribution with John Davis in 1980. As an officer and beginning in 1984 as CEO of Capital, he grew sales for 14 consecutive years, building Capital into a profitable international company with over $150 million in annual sales of pop culture products to retailers around the world. Capital also published over 400 pages of printed material a month, including internal correspondence, advanced comics, and other publications. Also beginning in 1998 and extending to the mid-2000s, uh, mid-2000, Grip was chairman of Next Planet Over, then a venture-funded San Francisco e-commerce company. Since early 2001, Grip has operated ICV2, the number one information source of pop culture business, as well as continuing his consulting practice. Now, it mentions that his company was sold several times in that bio. What's important to understand is that it was sold to Diamond, to the Diamond distributor. So ICV2 is, in essence, the marketing arm of Diamond. So while you listen to this interview, keep that in mind. And here we go. Here we are with Milton Grape, who runs the ICV2 conference and does other stuff. But I was mostly interested in talking to you about, I'm sure that a lot of people ask you questions about sort of like the future of the industry and where things are going, but I'm kind of more interested in your sort of very long uh, career path of like how it started and how you've been in an industry that's gone through like a lot of change and several recessions. And I think that sort of 
uh, history is good for like college age kids or people in their 20s going into almost any sort of career field? Um, well, I first got involved in the comic business in 1972, which was a very long time ago. Um, I had a college roommate who was uh, buying comic collections and then taking them to the tiny and very few conventions that were around at the time as a way of working his way through college and so I went along to a convention to help him and um, so got interested in the comics business uh, as part of that. I think uh, the first time I saw Japanese stuff, which is kind of some of the stuff you talk about, is uh, was in the like around the 1980-1981 era and I remember I was I was in distribution then. We started a distribution company in 1980, and we were selling to comic stores. People had just started importing the uh, Roman albums, which are the large format uh, books with lots of, lots of illustrations. Also around the same time, Gen of Hiroshima uh, started coming out in comic book form, and uh, eventually it was in a book form. Uh, so I started to see uh, Japanese stuff then, and as a distributor, we kept adding to that and there was a very uh, small and cult-like audience that just continued to grow. In around uh, 86 or 87, Viz came around and uh, I guess Dark Horse was probably before that and Eclipse had a couple of um, manga titles and uh, then Viz came into the country and I remember that uh, when we went to visit them in San Francisco before they started doing business, uh, they had two or three people that were sitting in their office doing market research, which was sort of unheard of for a comic, new comic publisher at the time, trying to figure out how big the market was and you know, trying to figure out in advance how many they could sell. And uh, So they started with comic format products, which, uh, you know, trying to adapt to the U.S. market. And over the years, uh, they've sort of gone more and more toward the... Um, Japanese formats, and now you know they're very close. They've got a weekly anthology and the trade paperbacks in the right to left format. So that's been an interesting uh, transition to watch. So, anyway, I was in distribution from 1980 through 1996, uh, sold that, and uh, did consulting and sort of semi retired for a couple of years. I was involved with a dot com startup in 99 and 2000 called Next Planet Over. I was an outside board member for a while, and I ran it for about six months, and we sold it. I was actually commuting from Wisconsin to San Francisco during that period. That was an interesting commute. And so then, uh, but I got inspired about the web by doing that because I was an e-commerce company. Saw the possibilities, and so decided to start a trade website. And by trade, I mean something that was for the business community in what at the time we called pop culture products and what now I'd call geek culture because it's broader and has sort of become redefined. Some people call it nerd culture, whatever. So we started with a website. Then uh, it was too early. The advertisers really were still primarily, I think, because they were from print backgrounds, were more focused on print. So we started a magazine a couple years in, and that got to be monthly, and I was pretty successful. And uh, now finally... The advertisers are catching up to where we were in nineteen or in two thousand and two thousand one when we started, and they're all moving to the web and away from the magazine. So we now have matched our business strategy with the environment. I was wondering, did you study business in school? Is that what you were going for? And were you reading the comics that your roommate was selling? I studied sociology, which uh, has been very useful. It's the what I would call the theoretical, or not theoretical, uh, the scientific basis for marketing. So that has been extremely useful in my career. Got a BA and went to grad school. Did not get a graduate degree. And in terms of the comics uh, in that era, he was getting stuff from the 40s. 
which were much more accessible at the time. So, no, I wasn't really reading those. What I was reading then was Marvels and Undergrounds. And uh, early 70s was a really interesting time in the comic business because or in the comic medium and art form because there was a lot of rebellion against the strictures of the comics code and um, a lot of experimentation. A lot of great artists came out of that period. Like by the mid-70s, heavy metal was being launched with European stuff, the whole San Francisco uh, underground community, and there was an underground publisher in uh, Wisconsin called Kitchen Sink Press publishing all this crazy experimental stuff that broke every taboo and every boundary, not only you know in terms of what they could depict uh, in terms of sex and violence, but also artistically. They didn't follow any of the same rules. Uh, so I found that really exciting and uh, really enjoyed reading those. So that and the Marvels of the time were, were pretty good, and I was reading those too. Are, are you still reading comics? I mean, are you still keeping up? I understand you have to keep your hand in it to sort of see where the market is going, but is there anything that you continue to consume and enjoy? I read a lot less, a lot fewer comics. I don't think that's because I have any less appreciation for the art form as much as the pressure of time. I read so many words a day just to do my job in terms of keeping up with the flow of news that um, it's sort of a busman's holiday to read afterwards. And the kinds of things I read are sort of complete graphic novels. So probably the last thing I read was uh, Cleveland, the Harvey Picar, uh, Harvey Picar thing. So that's kind of the thing that I gravitate towards. So I'm not really, I'm, I'm not following the Marvels and DCs per se. We certainly have people on our staff that do that, but it's not me. So you were in like a distribution business. I don't really know that much about the distribution of American comics, but I know some because we have a friend who works at like Midtown Comics, but he talks a lot about uh, how the distribution model worked. What, it, didn't it at some point in the 80s become like a monopoly and how is or by someone, or only a couple distributors, and how did your company, Diamond, how did your company sort of weather that, or how is it related? Just as we're going through a business transition now to digital, which is probably the biggest of four major transitions I would say I've seen in my career, uh, in the 70s and early 80s, when we started our distribution company, a different transition was happening, which was the transition between newsstand distribution, in other words, drugstores and supermarkets and newsstands, which was where comics had primarily been sold in the past, to comic stores. And the first comic stores were opening in the 70s. And so a distribution channel was developing to sell to those stores. And the key differences were newsstands sold returnable and what was called draws, or the quantities that the stores got were set by the distributors. And in the comic store channel, which was just developing the direct market, as it was called, it cut out one layer of distribution and everything was sold non-returnable. And it was sold non-returnable because, or it was possible to do that, because the retailers actually knew what they were selling. And, oh, this is a number one, I'm going to need more. So, and, oh, this is by an artist that I sold a lot of their last book, so I'm going to need more. Or they're changing the artist on this book and I'm going to need less. Uh, so they had a better understanding of what was going to sell, so they could make a business out of buying non-returnable. And that whole comic distribution channel started in the late 70s. I worked for two other companies that were in that channel in distribution before we started our own. Uh, we started our company in 1980. Uh, at its peak, that channel probably had a, about, I don't know, 17 or 18 distributors in it, uh, all of whom were buying direct from the publishers, hence the name Direct Market, uh, direct from the publishers like Marvel and DC and later, you know, Dark Horse and eventually Image and so forth, and uh, selling to comic stores. Then in around 1994 or 5, Marvel bought a distributor. 
and that started a major paradigm shift and uh, because they then cut off all the other distributors including our company and began selling through that one distributor to all of the stores previously all the distributors had all the products we competed over the stores but not over the product lines so uh, that began a shift that over time uh, then they did that a couple of years and and in the meantime uh, DC Comics which was the number two publisher uh, went exclusive with Diamond Comic Distributors then people started going out of business getting acquired we acquired some companies Diamond acquired some companies we got some exclusive lines which were smaller Viz was one of our exclusive lines for example Ultimately, there were two companies left, uh, Diamond and Capital City, which was our company, and Diamond acquired us, and at that point had effectively uh, exclusive distribution for comics to comic stores, 1996. Okay, so the dates were different than I thought. So you talked about like that there are four major uh, transitions that have happened in your career. Was that one of them, or did that cover like two? I didn't count that one. I mean, that was a distribution paradigm shift, but it wasn't like a major... uh, There was the development of comic stores and replacement of newsstand distribution. Uh, There was the development of bookstore distribution uh, and graphic novels as a package. And that was so great because it brought in a whole new audience of girls and women and kids and more casual consumers that previously hadn't had any place to buy comics. A third one that was happening around the same time was e-commerce which, again, sort of broadened the opportunities to reach more customers, and then the fourth is digital. It's my understanding that like the kind of underground comics that were coming out in the 70s, I've read somewhere in some comic history book that that was part of what kind of drove them out of the newsstands. Is that really true, or am I just... What drove comics out of the newsstands was that the newsstands were horribly inefficient. They weren't very good, and... The, and the direct comic market remains probably the most profitable distribution channel in publishing for publishers because it's non-returnable. And in every other channel, you take returns from 20 to 80%, and the magazine distribution is the, a horribly inefficient distribution channel, and it's horribly inefficient especially for comics because nobody really knew how they were going to sell except the people that were really deeply embedded in the business. It really started um, because... Newsstands were inefficient, and so when the first distributors went to Marvel and DC and said, hey, I'll buy non-returnable, I'll pay you up front, was the way it started. And so you have no risk, and it's like found money. And the publishers said, oh, I'll do that. And <laughs> and uh, so it was very small, but it just kept growing and growing and growing, and eventually totally replaced the inefficient distribution of the newsstands. So it was just more efficient. It was better business. Um, and I know that I've seen, you know, sample issues of ICP2 or whatever. It doesn't just cover comics. Like, there's some kind of movie news and other pop culture things in it, too, right? Are you selling sort of data about that in the ICP2 magazine, or how does that work? When I was in distribution and at Next Planet Over, and now with ICP2, I've sort of had this vision. There's a single consumer that buys a lot of the same stuff, and they don't know. Very few consumers buy all of it, but there's considerable overlap. And they have certain behavioral characteristics, which is they're hobbyists in their interests. So they, some of them buy comics. Uh, our other big category right now is hobby games or tabletop games, which include collectible card games and sort of the more interesting board games and miniature games and so on. And uh, movie and TV merchandise is also part of it. And movie and TV have become so infused with geek culture now that they influence the sales of every kind of product. And um, the products influence the 
programming, so you have something like Walking Dead, which started as a tiny little black-and-white comic and became a more successful black-and-white comic and graphic novels, and then became a highly successful television show, and now there's games based on Walking Dead, and there's action figures, and uh, there's TV shows about The Walking Dead, and uh, so it's really a lifestyle, and so I always thought that the stores service that lifestyle, or the best of them service that lifestyle, so the coverage should cover that lifestyle, and that's why we do what we do. That makes total sense. It's on these badges, too. We have, like, Walking Dead badges. So then, related to sort of that question, because you're so deep into the marketing of things, when you see a movie, like, are you thinking about the marketing all the time, or are you able to, like, enjoy it? Uh, no, I'm not thinking about marketing all the time. <laughs> Other than, uh, you know, like at the end, so the end of Avengers, they show Thanos. It's like, okay, well, that's going to be a hot character now, and or whatever. But, no, I mean, I love all this stuff. And uh, so being able to immerse myself in it, is, in the story, is is the fun part of the business. And it's not really even part of the business, it's just part of my life. Well, I have, I, I guess I have a question about that, which is I have frequently heard from fans who went into business that essentially you can be a fan or you can be a business person. And if you are a fan in business, you won't last long. You certainly lasted quite some time. So I presume you'd have something to say on that subject. Uh, The key is separating the two. You can have things that you love, but that doesn't mean they sell. Uh, Like when I was in distribution, when I was in distribution, our saying was, good is as good sells. Because I'd have product managers or people who wanted to push a particular product, they'd say, it's really, really good. And I'd say, and if it wasn't selling, I'd say, but nobody wants it. (laughs) And so I guess uh, ultimately you tend to have commercial criteria for your business decisions. You know, like what I was talking about before, the stuff I like isn't necessarily the best sellers, but I recognize that's the case, and I don't try to substitute one for the other. So you've been going to these conventions and stuff since the 70s. How many cons do you hit per year lately? I'm doing like eight a year now. Uh, That includes some, like, Toy Fair out here, which is a trade show, or Comics Pro, which is a retailer meeting that's not really a, a show per se. It's really incredible to me what's happened. I mean, what's happened. Uh, my first San Diego Comic Con, for example, was in 1980. Uh, my first Chicago Comic Con was in the mid-70s somewhere. The first comic convention I went to was in 1972, which was the Berkeley Comic Convention. And that was in this underground area that I was talking about. So that was very different because, well, like Printmint, which was one of the company that was publishing Zap at the time, had a gigantic hookah behind their table, and there were huge clouds of marijuana smoke uh, coming out from behind it. So that was a different era. But uh, the Chicago Comic Con, and there was a very long tradition of comic conventions in Chicago. Uh, They used to have these weekly shows at the YWCA that had like 10 tables. But the fans would go, or I'm sorry, not weekly, monthly. The fans would go every month. They knew certain dealers would be there, and there were all kinds of weird, you know, like a dealer that was selling old radio magazines and various ephemera and eclectic collectibles. Uh, wasn't all comics, but uh, was a run by comic book guys, and that eventually some of those same guys ended up running this Chicago Comic Convention, which has been running continuously since the mid-70s. So to see it go from something that started with, you know, 10 tables in a Y uh, to something like this show here in New York, which has gotten to be incredibly big and successful, and San Diego has really, really been something. And it sort of validates what I was talking about earlier, which is that there's all this crossover between all these different hobbies. So if you walk through this floor, uh, my favorite parts of the floor these days are just in terms of 
the visuals are like the lowbrow art and the urban vinyl toys. And uh, so in this building, at the south end of the building, they got a section of that stuff, which I just had so much fun in walking around and looking at all that great stuff. But you go from that, you got, you know, intensely commercial and successful video game companies. You got the movie studios. You've got a lot of television. San Diego's just overrun with television now. There's tons of it. But you still have the comic guys that are selling original art from the 40s. And you have the Artist Alley that has all these great creators assembled. So I love these conventions now. I love San Diego. Some people decry the change, but I really love it because I love the variety and uh, all this different geek culture and that you can get it all under one roof. I've, we've only gone to San Diego like twice, but I was kind of worried the first time we went that it would be like more comic stuff, and I'm not really that familiar with American comics so much as manga. And so I was surprised to see it, it was a television con, <laughs> and that there were all these television events going on and movie tie and stuff. Did you have something? I'm not one to necessarily decry what it's become, but it is very strange. Uh, I, I'm younger than you, but I have been in the culture since I could walk, essentially. And so... I was attending anime conventions, for instance, uh, in the late 80s when it was 30-year-old guys, maybe 150, 200 of them, and that was the face of the culture. And so now, where you have, you know, preteen cosplaying, it's somehow, it's hit mainstream, and so this should make me overwhelmingly happy. And I'm a little reserved. Of course, for you, I know it's good business, and that's true. But I, I feel uh, there, there is something there. I don't know if you want to respond to that. I don't know. Is that a question? <laughs> it's not really a question. It's just I, you, you have watched this happen. And uh, I guess just what, what, what do you make of it? Something that was such a niche market turning into a mainstream billion, hundred billion dollar industry, you know? Uh, Well, to me, it validates my existence. (laughs) I mean, uh, because uh, I've always felt that these things are so great, and I wish more people could experience them. I have this dream, and one dream uh, with regard to comic books, for example, is that the comic business here and the comic medium and the comic art form could be as popular here as it is in some other countries which maybe are more civilized than we are here and the reason i put it that way is because in the 50s in the united states there was sort of a witch hunt against comics it constricted distribution it constricted comics to a particular audience to a particular kind of art at the same time in france and belgium for example or in japan comics continued to grow and the difference between those countries and here is that comics are for everyone and whoever the audience is, male, female, young, old, whatever taste, whatever genre, whatever kind of story you like, you can find something that uh, fits your tastes. And we haven't had that here. To me, that's a great, that's a crime because comics just is a great way to express art and to express stories. And same with some of these other categories. Uh, the fun of hobby gaming um, is sort of interesting to watch that happen in the last couple of years you've seen video game sales plummeting and even if you include social and mobile video gaming is down and at the same time the tabletop business is exploding people i know that are in the tech business they stare at screens all day long and they're tied to those screens and they get home and they're they might be video gamers but they're doing less of that they're trying to find ways to get out and interact with human beings so tabletop gaming is growing and i think that's a really great thing all the different kinds of art like i was talking about the collectible uh, the urban vinyl toys and the lowbrow art and i think 
the whole history of this business is, or in this medium and this art form, and more broadly geek culture is appreciating these things that were created for pop culture as art and as a creation that's worthy of your interest and appreciation. To me, I want to share that appreciation and I want other people to share it. And I truly believe that a hundred years from now, just as, you know, when Mozart wrote the magic flute for the masses, it was considered trashy. Well, the comics that were written over the last 50 years that were created for people that were just, they thought they were uh, either, you know, just casual people that were going to pick something up and throw it away. And now we've preserved all this stuff and we recognize the best of it as the finest art and storytelling as good as the best that's written in prose. And so I hope that other people have that appreciation. So to me, it's all good. If I can get in one last question. One time I heard you give an anecdote, or you told sort of a brief anecdote about uh, the first time you saw a Yaoi manga, and it was like 1981 or something, and being sort of blown away by it. If you could talk a little bit about that story. Actually, it was Viz. And we were at a meeting at Viz. In fact, it may have been that first meeting that I was describing in like 86, 87-ish. And so they showed us all this stuff that, you know, will this ever sell in the United States? And I looked at that and I thought, well, there might be a niche for that. But our general answer was it seems sort of niche. We didn't really understand. Well, it's created by women, for women. It's not really just, you know, whatever percentage of the population is gay that's going to read this. And so um, that's been an interesting phenomenon to watch. And it's really expressive of what I was talking about before, which is there's comics for all kinds of tastes. And in that case, they're great stories. They're stories about relationships and romance. And they happen to be about gay, gay characters, but people that like stories about relationships like those stories. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. That's all. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah. What, what do women want? It turns out they, they want to see t- two guys kissing. That's, that's what they want. It's, it's weird. Who knew? Who knew? Well, women. Works both ways, and I guess that's why uh, they're popular. Thank you so much.